please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. This morning is a sixth sermon in a series that we've started this fall, walking through the patriarchs of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and their wives. And we come this morning to a transition, a a, a seam chapter, where the focus shifts from Abraham and Sarah. Sarah has just died in Genesis chapter 23. And the camera, as it were, shifts to Isaac and how Isaac finds a wife. And so my sermon is answering the question, how do we pass it on? Since we see the passing of the torch from the first patriarch, Abraham, to Isaac and his wife, it's a relevant question for us today as well. And I want to begin by reminding you that our first parent's job was to pass it on. In something known as the dominion mandate in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, Adam and Eve, mankind made in the image of God, male and female, were told this, to fill the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue it and have dominion. This means, in a nutshell, All the blessings of communion with God, face-to-face, creaturely fellowship with the Creator, and the beauty of the garden, its abundance, overflowing abundance, all of that was to be taken and exported to the earth. That Adam and Eve were to multiply the abundance of the image by having an abundance of children. And they were to multiply the abundance of the garden by moving into the, if we may put it this way, as of yet unordered world and bringing the order of Eden, that temple sanctuary, to the great creation of God. But they sinned. Rather than sharing the blessing of being under God's rule, what ensued was the worst pandemic the world has ever known or will ever know the virus of sin. And instead of passing on the goodness and grace of God, they passed on pride, misery, and chaos. What is the answer? Because we've been doing it ever since. How do we get back to that original calling to pass on the goodness and blessing of God instead of what seems to be our natural inclination. How can you learn to bless your children instead of cursing them with your own selfishness or pride? How can you learn to honor your obedient, honor your parents' children with obedience and honor and respect, even when they might be wrong? As couples, if you're married, how can you learn to keep your marriage vows, love, honor, cherish, respect, wives to obey, husbands to lead in a Christ-like manner. Instead of constantly trampling our vows with selfish pride. Finding answers to these questions is one of the big reasons that we're in this series to begin with. We're studying the patriarchs because we see in the succession, Abraham to Isaac, 
Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to Joseph. We see in the succession a remarkable bunch of rascals. And yet, in spite of that, God has seen fit to pass on the treasure of his grace, the covenant promise that I will be your God, I will be a friend to you, in spite of all the the messy lives that are on display for us in Genesis 12 and beyond. So how do we pass it on? What is the secret to passing on the faith and the blessings of the faith to our kids, to our grandchildren? A friend of mine out west, we talk on the phone, and he reminded me that he is raising his grandchildren as his own children because there are no parents involved. And he recounted to me a tragedy that took place in the life of his son. What do I do, Pastor Phil? What about as a church? We're, we're focusing this fall on going beyond the four walls, beyond Sunday morning, into one another's lives and taking the gospel out into the world. That's passing it on. How do we do it as a church, not just as families? What is the story of Isaac and Rebekah? How do they find each other? How do they meet? And what can we learn from their story about passing on the faith to those that are precious to us? Let's begin with prayer. Father, as we turn now to the reading of your holy word and to its preaching, its explanation, its application to our lives, we admit that we are not prepared to hear as we should be. Even as I pray, I'm sure that some are distracted by cares and concerns and anxieties that have nothing to do with Sunday morning. So Lord, with the words of my mouth now and the thoughts and questions on our hearts and minds be pleasing to you. Help us by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. My sermon this morning is going to be divided into three sections. I'm going to walk through the story with you. It's, a, it's the longest chapter in Genesis. It's the second longest story in the entire book of Genesis. The only longer story in terms of numbers of verses are the three chapters that tell us about the flood. So scripture has devoted a lot of real estate to the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. We're, we're going to read through the whole of 67 chapters, but we're going to do it in four parts as I retell the story. That's the first part of my message. Then having, having walked through the story, we're gonna try to discern some lessons from the story that God might have for the church today. And I'm gonna conclude with some specific applications. So let's look at this, the story. The first part we'll call the commission in Genesis 24, one through nine. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had, in charge, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, 
See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. This is the commission. Now, when we left off our story of Abraham two weeks ago, he had traveled three days from his current village, which was Beersheba, to the mountainous region that later became known as Moriah. And it was named this because Moriah is derived from the Hebrew word vision or sight. And in the mountain of Moriah, the Lord appeared in a miraculous way and provided a ram to spare Isaac's life as proof and as a test of Abraham's faith. Do you remember why Abraham was tested in this way? Abraham was tested because God had determined and this is a good inference from the story, we're not told this explicitly, God had determined that Abraham's fatherly affection for his son needed to be purified. I want to repeat that. Abraham was tested because God had seen into Abraham's heart and determined that Abraham's affections for his one and only son, his beloved son, needed to be sanctified and made more holy. In this test, Abraham learned to receive Isaac as a gift of God's grace. And that God's purposes for Isaac were more more important than Abraham's desires for Isaac. That's what Mount Moriah was about. And this lesson was implemented now, later, after the death of Isaac's mother, when Abraham came to provide for him to have a wife. It was imperative as Abraham looked around and he saw that he lived in the land of Canaan amongst the Canaanites whom he was already told that his descendants would possess their land and destroy them as the enemies of God. It would be, to say the least, counterproductive for Isaac to marry one of the people when Isaac's children would then be destroyed by Abraham's own children. It's imperative that Isaac marry someone amongst the people of God, not amongst the land of Canaan. So for this reason, Abraham commissions his servant. We're not told the man's name. It's probably Eleazar, back from Genesis 15, the 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 man from Damascus. But at this point, if it's Eliezer, then it's, it's 60 years later or so. So he's quite old at this point. But whoever it is, he's commissioned to travel back to where Abraham came from, to the land of Haran. Remember, Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldees. It's about an 800-mile trip. So uh, Eliezer, this old man, is going halfway back to that stopping place in the place of Haran to find Abraham's relatives, presumably not just because they're related by blood, kinship, 
by family, but most importantly, because they're kinship by faith. Find a wife for my son amongst those who fear God. That's what the servant was commissioned to do. Now, what if Eliezer doesn't find a suitable girl? And what if the girl he finds won't come back with him? It is possible that the woman that Eliezer would meet would have no interest in going to a place that she's never lived or seen or possibly even heard of to meet a man she's never met. That's possible, don't you think? And so Eliezer, being very practical, says, Master Abraham, what if? Should I take Isaac and bring him back here, I guess so he can find a wife for himself? What's the backup plan? And Abraham's answer in repeated phrases is, no, do not bring my son Isaac back to Haran. We are going to trust God. Now, you see why Moriah was important. Abraham learned in Moriah that his son belonged to God and his son's future belonged to God and the disposition, the plan for him to get from his present into his future also belonged to God. Abraham believed that the angel of the Lord would go before the servant and would arrange everything just as he had arranged for the ram to be provided for Isaac on that mountain. And then Abraham adds this, but even if that's not the case, don't bring him back here. God will take care of it in some way that we are unaware. That's the commissioning. By the way, the the swearing of this is by placing his hand on his thigh, which may refer to, to Abraham's genitalia. It might refer just to the back of his leg or his hip. But the symbolic placing of the hand in this part of the body indicates that what is at issue here is nothing more than the promise given to Abraham that his son would be a blessing to the world. And so the oath is given. Part two is the journey, beginning at verse 10. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. And before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. 
And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw waters for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all of his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. And as for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. The journey. In part two of this mini story, the servant, we're calling him Eleazar, leaves with ten camels and a, a very large store of treasure for this new bride. What a scene. Can you picture ten camels? That's an impressive sight. And the story skips over his journey. This is a long journey that he takes. And we find him arriving in the city of Nahor, beginning to try, according to his own sanctified common sense, how on earth am I going to accomplish this challenge? How am I going to find Isaac, the promised son, a wife from Abraham's godly kinsman? What shape does the plan take in Eliezer's mind? He goes to a place where the women are gathering in the evening. That makes sense. If the woman isn't going to be amongst that company, they will probably know where Nahor's family is. So that makes sense for him to locate himself in this place. But not only does Eliezer go to this place, he pauses and dedicates his mission now that he's arrived. He dedicates it to God in prayer. This is verses 12 through 15. He asks for success in verse 12, and he appeals to God's gracious love, his covenant love, his steadfast love, also in verse 12. But then he devises a test by which he can determine God's will. Here's how his thinking goes. It's a test of character. He says, God, I don't know how you're going to answer this prayer, but it would make sense to me if the woman that you send me is the kind of woman who can manage a bunch of animals and their water, who's hardworking, who's not afraid of work, who's cheerful, and when asked to do something, agrees to it, and offers to do more, the kind of girl that, that goes beyond what is asked. And so, Lord, if you're willing, please answer my master's request with this situation. The first person I meet, may it be that girl. Please, Lord. 
This is not a supernatural sign from heaven. He didn't say, Lord, please cause her name to be written in the heavens by the, angel, the finger of an angel. He's using a number of very practical criteria that I would say even to this day make sense in terms of qualities any sane man would look for in a wife. And what happens next? No sooner is the servant finished praying. In fact, even before he's finished praying, he opens his eyes and he sees Rebecca. A remarkable timing and how often God works this way. Even before we're done praying, the answer whoosh, is on its way. You know, in the, in the old banks where the, the tube carries your money from the bank, it's like even before I hit in my request for cash, the tube is on its way. Now, Rebecca has no idea what's about to happen. There's an innocence about her. Uh, uh, her lack of awareness shows some humility, I think. And the story tells us that he notices that she's very beautiful, which is a bonus. But the thing that he's looking for primarily is not her beauty, but it's her character. She's a hardworking girl. For instance, I'm told in my research that a camel after a journey like this would drink as much as 25 gallons of water. Now, one gallon weighs eight pounds. He's got 10 camels, 250 gallons of water. And what do we see Rebecca doing? Hurrying, absolutely, I'll get this. Would you like fries with that? What was her motivation? Was she impressed by the the retinue of camels and servants and people and treasure chests, perhaps? Was she intrigued? Had she been trained by her parents to simply be ready to help whatever the occasion may be, be it noble or humble? When he sees the girl's response, he gets out gold to begin to offer her as a gesture of good faith and an indication that he believes his prayers are about to be answered. But he doesn't give it to her yet. He says, what is your name and who is your family? And you can almost hear him going like, like that with holding his breath. She says, I am the granddaughter of Nahor. And if he said it at this time, he'd be like, oy vey. You've got to be kidding me. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. My prayers have been answered. God has Jehovah Jireh, God has once more appeared on Abraham's cause for Isaac. Part three, the proposal. This begins at verse 28. Rebecca makes a quick exit. She's so excited to have seen, she doesn't even say goodbye. She tells her brother named Laban, verse 29. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the bracelets and the ring on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. Laban's interest in money and treasure and his greed comes up later in the story of Genesis, by the way. We'll hear about that in a couple of weeks. So Laban went to meet the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. 
So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. The food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And Laban said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. My master has made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And it will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. And before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water, and I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. And then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head, and I worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us for a while, at least ten days. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman. Let's ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they went away, Rebekah, their sister, 
and her nurse, whose name is Deborah, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. This is the proposal. Rebekah runs away to her mother to explain, as any daughter would, you will not believe, Mom, what just happened to me. And her brother Laban, not the father, which becomes an interesting factor later in the story, notices the gifts and hears the tale and runs out to greet the stranger and invites him back to the home. But before the traditional ancient Near Eastern custom of a meal can be shared, the servant, Abraham's servant, Eliezer, says, before we do anything else, I need to tell you why I'm here. It's of utmost importance. And so the meal is set aside. They say, speak on. What, what's so important that food has to wait? This better be good. And so he recounts it, and you see the retelling there. And it took a long time. In fact, this may be as much Bible as you've heard read on a Sunday morning in a long time. He retells the story detail by detail. Not exactly. It's changed and emphasized in places for various reasons. But notice, he's just laying it out there. He's not twisting anybody's arm. He's saying, this is what happened. He effectively says, what do you think? Is this from God or not? So we see here, even in the way that the story is retold, the faith of Eliezer. He doesn't want to force the matter out of the hand of God. He's not trying to cut corners or get the answer back that he wants. He's hopeful, but he knows that God still has to confirm a few different things, including Rebecca's own willingness or consent. And that comes up when we hit the complication of the next day. Laban and her mother had some chance to think about it, and they're like, this seems a little hasty. Let's pause a minute and just make sure that we're all going in the same direction here, shall we? And the servant says, God has prospered my way. I have learned from Abraham that the best path of obedience is prompt obedience. Let's do this now. And they're like, well, since you put it that way, let's see what Rebecca thinks. And so they call Rebecca. And Rebecca discerns in all of this. And I think this is her best characteristic. We've talked about Rebecca's character already. To me, this is her best characteristic. She has spiritual discernment to see the hand of God in all of these circumstances. And she says, very simply, I will go. What a great match for Abraham's son. Abraham, who... Early the next morning when he was told to sacrifice his son Isaac on the mountains of Moriah, early the next morning, without delay, he immediately goes to obey a very difficult command. And now the wife of his son is modeling those same characteristics. Parents, isn't that what we pray for in our children? I mean, there are plenty of negative virtues that I have, but I pray that my best virtues and qualities and faith and my wife's Best qualities and faithfulness will be mirrored in the choices of spouses that our children make. And that they'll leave behind our faults and build on our successes. 
Well, the last part of the story, I'm not going to read it. I'll leave it for you to read on your own. Verses 62 to the end. It's, made, it's a made-for-motion picture scene where Rebecca is pulling up and Isaac is meditating, praying in the field, probably grieving over his mother's death still, praying that the servant of his father, Abraham, would be successful in the journey, asking God what kind of woman that he would bring him, simply communing with God. We're not told what happens. And it's as if they see each other. They lock eyes from a distance. You have to read it. It's beautiful. What are the lessons we can learn from this story? Three lessons. Number one, divine promises come about through human effort. I'll repeat that. Divine promises come about through human effort. In the story of the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, we see the divine promise very clearly. But we also see it coming about through the careful planning of Abraham, the father. Go to this place, do this, don't do that. Those are Abraham's decisions. Sanctified decisions, but human decisions nonetheless. Then the servant raises objections. Well, what about this and what about that? Sanctified objections. Then the servant goes. He brings 10 camels and a whole load of treasure. That was a good choice, if you ask me. Very good human decision there, bringing all of those all of those resources with him. And then he stops at the well where the women gather in the evening in that society. Good idea. The divine promise, it's like it's moving forward through one good decision, sometimes seemingly random decision after another. And notice he's even working through the prayers of the servant. I would say the prayer was a little plucky. I would not recommend telling God exactly where and when you're to meet your wife. Nevertheless, in God's patience, sense of humor, he used that prayer. In fact, he answered it, there, there, boy. He answered it before he was even done praying. Human decisions, maybe a little, maybe a little much, but still a human choice. Pastor Robert Rayburn, speaking of the way that faith gets passed on to our children, describes it as the mysterious combination, this is great, of destiny and contingency. Destiny and contingency, divine promise and human decisions. We see it, and this was not planned, but in the baptism for the Webbers and the Evans, they made a choice. In fact, their parents are here. The parents have been praying, Dave, for you for a long time even before they knew your name. And I know the same is true in the Weber's family. In fact, in the Weber's, we see multiple generations of God's faithfulness. Am I right? And we pray, and we trust, and we work, and we make mistakes. We repent, and we see the promise of God, destiny being moving through, through these actions of a husband's parents and a wife's parents, and, and I know even through grandparents, and even great-grandparents, you can see that destiny and contingency coming together. Likewise, with the baptism of these kids, it is 100% your responsibility to raise, raise these girls as Christians, and yet it's 100% in God's hands. Can we say that? We don't need to 
resolve the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility or free will this morning because Scripture doesn't resolve it. It calls you to a full engagement with all your efforts to do the work of the Lord and yet fully resting in the promises of God knowing that your, your efforts apart from his grace avail to nothing. Proverbs 22.6 is a great picture of this. Train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. There is a promise there. That's destiny. That's the destiny of your children, Christians. But there's also contingency and responsibility to train in that context means to narrow his or her options. Most of you need to work on this as parents. Reduce the number of choices that your children have. Broccoli or nothing. That's a good reduction in choices as far as I'm concerned. Second lesson from this It's crucial that you date or you marry in the Lord. This is not an option for a believer. You don't get to explore dating and ignore faith just because it's a date. For a Christian, dating and marriage is in the Lord. We see this in Abraham's life. The sons of The sons and daughters of Canaan were not to be part of Abraham's family. Likewise, the people of the world are not to be part of a Christian's family. This is not Abraham securing the right gene pool for Isaac. It's Abraham securing the right faith pool for Isaac. Laban, though he is a scoundrel, greets him as one who is blessed of Yahweh, Jehovah. Laban greets the the servant of Abraham with the name of the God of Abraham. Now, maybe he heard it through Rebekah and he was still angling for the treasure. It's hard to know with Laban. But there was at least a nominal faith in this family. And that should be the expectation of every, every parent here, is that you do your best, as Abraham did, to set your children up to marry in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7.39, Christians are to marry in the Lord. This isn't just an Old Testament idea. It is a New Testament command. One pastor put it this way, we date and marry people who share the things that are most important to us. If you're a teenager or a college student and you find yourself sort of footsieing or tiptoeing out into the garden fields of non-Christian dating, Here's what's really happening. Your faith is not precious to you. The Lord Jesus is not the Lord of your life. And therefore, you need to ask whether or not he really is your savior. Because dating a non-Christian effectively invalidates your profession of faith in Christ. You see, your marriage and dating is sort of Preparing for marriage in different levels. I mean, you don't need to, okay, I want to go on a date, and if it works out, we're going to get married. I think there's a place for casual dating. By the way, there's courtship involved and parental involvement, and I think parents have some flexibility as to how they work out matching up their kids with the right spouse. Not all families are going to do it the same way. But the point is that your your romantic relationships need to prepare you to model Christ and the bride of Christ, the church, with your lives. 
And I think there's another element here in terms of dating in the Lord. It's fine, you can say, I want to date a Christian or I want to marry a Christian. But notice how the servant sort of narrowed the field. She was a beautiful, hardworking, cheerful, energetic, and most importantly, an adventuresome girl with a huge amount of faith. So the servant had seen all of these qualities, not just that she was generally a believer, but she had some very specific characteristics, character qualities that the servant knew would be a good match for his master's son, Isaac. So parents, how are you helping your children find godly spouses? Are you praying for them at the very least? The third lesson, I think, from this text is this. We see Abraham's servant, Eleazar, all through this passage, seeking God's will in prayer. And friends, we need to do a better job at dedicating our lives and our plans to the Lord in prayer. And I saw it in multiple commentators. They said, uh, Eleazar, Abraham's servant, is a model picture of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which is one of my favorite verses. Do you know what it is? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, at the beginning of the journey, in the middle of the journey, and at the end of the journey, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. So we see Eliezer praying the whole time. Paul says, pray continually. We see Eliezer praying personally. He speaks to God in his heart. It's from the heart. And we see him as praying practically, but also humbly. He, he prays with an open hand and leaves the results to God, even though he has an idea of how he would hope God would work. Well, my topic this morning has been, how do we pass it on? And I think we can do a lot worse than if we learn to pass it on by making sure we marry in the Lord, making sure our lives are a picture of constant prayer, of personal prayer, of practical prayer, and making sure that we look after the needs of our children and recognize that divine sovereignty, God's destiny for our kids, is very closely tied with our responsibility to bring that about. That's how you pass it on. You believe that God is in charge, but you do your, your part. You find a Christian spouse who will partner with you in the rearing of these children, and then you pray. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins to call us into this special and unique relationship. Somewhat like Rebecca, we were found and chosen and called and blessed before we even realized what was happening to us. And the journey that we've taken is somewhat like the journey that Rebecca took with the servant. All through our lives, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us and preparing us to meet the bridegroom. So some of us will meet him very soon, others it will be many years. May we walk and be prepared to pass it on along the way, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Please visit our website at www.
off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.